Welcome to Refrangible. I'm your host, Jonifer Fields. And I'm Jonah Chester. In episode one of this season, we touched briefly upon the ideal of appropriating, or perhaps more accurately, commodifying culture. Who really gets to reap the rewards, financial and otherwise, of a specific culture's iconography, spirituality, and history? At least here in America, it's very rare that it's the people who originally established that culture. From tribal prints on textiles to geisha costumes and Halloween stores, white America has a history of benefiting off of other cultures, while simultaneously suppressing those traditions among their original communities. So today, we're re-examining the commodification of culture and what happens when appreciation turns into appropriation. When we were brainstorming for this episode, we initially want to focus on troubling objects, things that make us feel uncomfortable for social and cultural reasons. For example, Aunt Jemima, the Land O'Lakes Native American Butter Girl, or Uncle Ben's Rice, some of which are now retired BIPOC characters who are used to market a product, despite those products being produced by white-owned companies. As it turns out, one of the best places to examine the commodification of culture is the grocery store. Well, I know one of the things that took me a while to realize was problematic was the the smudge stick thing. I worked with Native people and we talk smudge all the time. They buy smudge from the co-op and it was something that I hadn't even registered was not an okay thing to do outside of that circle because it was already kind of a part of my life. It wasn't brought up until a couple of years ago by uh, an employee who's native who pointed out that it's problematic that we sell these herb bundles and are calling them smudge because smudge is a very spiritual um, act. It's kind of like a verb more than a noun, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's something you're doing. I know I had to like kind of walk back through my stuff because I was I was defensive about it because it's, you know it's products I sell. I was defensive about it because I use them. I it was it was hard for me to get through that thing and also feeling like it was such an like um, she was really hurt so she was being very aggressive and it was hard um, to hear to to feel somebody else's pain and then also experience my own. It was a big big super 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 pain. I went to college at Central Michigan University and their mascot is the Chippewa. And so I attended, early in my college career, I attended a rally that was put on by the Native American student organization saying we need to change the nickname. And I was like, whoa, you know, like it was like one of those moments when you're like learning about activism, learning about the world and you're putting stuff together. And so I had one of those moments, I approached the group and and they're like, yeah, you want to come to our meetings? And I'm like, I'm not native. And they're like, no, no, it's, you're you're if you're part of the team you're part of the team kind of thing so i ended up staying in that group for several years through college and made a lot of friends with with a lot of native people consequently went to a lot of native events i ended up working for the office of native american affairs and not affairs what's it 
we called it something different, but uh, along those lines, and minority student services and that sort of thing. And so, and one of my best friends is native. Um, so it was, it was like I had lots, it was a lot of my formative years, I felt like I was steeped in native culture. And um, we, uh, I was invited to come to sweats, I went to powwows, I helped organize powwows. It was, it was a lot, it was a big part of me. And so how did I not see this? So I, I was, that was hard. I, I just, I, I guess, mostly on a personal level. And so it's, it's really hard to separate that when you're, you know, in these environments and especially when the other person is responding so personally. Um, it was hard, it was hard, but it, it was hard for her. You know, it was, I know it's been brought up, like since we've had that conversation, I've been realizing that this conversation has been out there and it's just not been on my radar. Um, and so going back and kind of looking at that was, was very interesting but then you know so then after kind of um going through that we ended up approaching some of the companies that we that we bought smudge sticks from you know they would call them smudge on the bag um and we would say hey do you do you realize how this is problematic and do you have a plan to change what you're calling these herb sticks and so we got some kind of vague promises and stuff from some companies and then in the meantime i was able to find um uh, a, a smudge stick that was actually grown by native people and so it, it money was actually going into the community and so that felt better to sell you get so caught up doing not just your regular life but in work itself you know, when you spend so much time doing a job and you know it's hard not to take that kind of stuff personal like how did i overlook that right i'm i'm picking these products out for a store we're going to open up and i'm just thinking you know these fuzzy warm feelings i have from being a kid using aunt jemima and using uncle ben's rice and just you know not even thinking twice about it didn't even not even on my you know like you said not even really on my radar and i don't know why just you know, and then until someone politely points it out, like, hey, don't you think that these kind of these items might be kind of problematic? Like, oh, yeah, I, yeah, oh my god, yeah, I can understand where you're coming from. But I'm also like, I also feel like these are products that people are familiar with, right? These are brands that, that there's a reason why they make people feel warm. It's like, it's like it, it invokes this memory for them, right? Kind of like harkens back to like what they remember from being a kid. And being taken care of, right? It's when you're in a moment where you're kind of like, okay, what am I? When I when I have 50 million decisions to make today, and I can't make a decision about pancake syrup, what's the go-to? It's because it's it's this, because it's just easy, right? Yeah, you do what you do what sells well. Right. Like that's usually that's the first it. choice right. when you're working in retail. I mean, and that's just it. You have to make a ton of decisions in a very short mm -hmm. amount of time. And sometimes you don't think through things all clearly because it just seems like, hey, this is the right decision because it makes sense. It fits. It fits in with everything I'm doing. I got to have something that's really, really super uber cheap, something generic on the shelf that's conventional and something that's a brand name conventional that people recognize because people trust those products, you know? Yeah. And if you start making yourself into that store that you know you can't, I can't go in and get the handful of staples I need and then maybe explore some of this fun stuff that you're, you're, if you take away those staples, then suddenly they're just going to Woodman's because they know they can get everything they need there. Um, yeah, we have to meet people like where they're at 
and provide make sure we have an option and i think that's kind of where we came to i know with the smudge discussion that's where we came to is we, we need to make sure we always have an option for like for everything and we like because with other products we had that in our heads too about like we want to make sure there's a, a lower cost option or an organic option or a i don't know whatever the whatever the options are we want to make sure there's at least one for everybody that would meet everybody's needs and i think we the, the, the conversation started going more into like areas of problematic products and like we if we can't get rid of it then we need to make sure there's an option that people can go to that's similar yeah. um, I think one of the things I was remember that you said before that kind of you know, giving people the chance and meeting them and not not just their ignorance but you know not understanding something and trying to figure out I feel like in each one of these cases where we were actually in contact with the company, and trying to come to a resolution about the problem, problem, you know, that's what we were asking for. Uh, that's yeah. Kickapoo Coffee. They changed their own name. They become Wonder State, right? That's an interesting story in itself. Someone bringing that to their attention, and we didn't even talk to them. They changed their name on their own well before we were even thinking about that, right? So it's like there's there's examples of companies doing that, and it's super costly to change your branding. So I get it, but. I feel like in each case we've tried to bring it to people's attention and talk through it and walk through it with them before we make any decision, right? To give them, you know, the knowledge of why, what, what's going on, why we're feeling the way we are or what we think should happen or how they might want to approach it to go forward, giving them the example of Kickapoo Coffee, changing their name, becoming Wonder State, and meeting with the Kickapoo and formally apologizing and all that, you know? They went through the whole thing. And I think that they did it, they did it right. And did it with respect and it, it was necessary. appropriation can get pretty complex when trying to define the exact term and how it relates to um, certain identities and um, cultural beliefs but for myself cultural appropriation is basically the taking of a culture's um, either designs or um, you know cultural elements and using it uh, for their benefit so not giving any financial incentive or support back to the communities that they're pulling from. Most of the conversations that I have with people about cultural appropriation, they're looking for a way, they're looking for permission. They're looking for me as a, as a black woman to give them permission to do these things, whether or not I come from that culture. When you're talking about this in the broader scope, do you find that sort of argument where people are basically looking to you to give permission and not necessarily truly understand what it is that is the issue? Oh, yes, definitely, all the time. Um, so this is something that has been happening recently within the last couple of years, uh, where a lot of either individuals or organizations or even instructors reach out to me to kind of get feedback in terms of if something is being appropriated. Um, and I try to be as clear as possible, saying, 
Um, usually it's best to do your own research in terms of understanding what cultural appropriation is, how you would personally define it. Um, but like I said, it varies from, you know, area to area, um, especially when talking about cultural appropriation within design or even arts, um, there's different kind of guidelines and rules when it comes to that. So that's why cultural appropriation is kind of a very fine line between whether it's appreciation or appropriation. Um, but for you know most individuals that I talk to, I try to give them as much context in terms of why it is hurtful for certain communities um, and why it's important to be able to teach those histories because most often these are the histories that are kind of omitted from books and everything and it's not as very widely talked about as it should be. And I think the one thing that people, I don't want to say that people, let me just put this into a personal, let me just speak for myself here. This isn't new. But it seems now that there is an eye turned to it. What turned your eye to it? What is it that, that brought it to your attention that really sort of, as my mother would say, put that taste in your mouth? Yeah, uh, so the first time that really kind of impacted me was leaving my home state of New Mexico. Um, so in New Mexico, I'm surrounded not only by my own culture, um, but a lot of a blend of different indigenous cultures within that region. Um, so it's very heavy on our heritage and our history. So coming up to Wisconsin, that was kind of one of my first times experiencing um, the way that people kind of appropriate our identity. And it was actually a trip to Urban Outfitters um, and realizing a lot of the designs that they were pulling from were taken out of context. So certain designs are related either to um, ceremony, especially within the Diné culture. Sand paintings are extremely important, but there were jackets with the Yebaches on there. Um, you know, there was underwear with Navajo or Diné um, design elements on it. So it was kind of a huge disrespect to not only myself, but also to the community that I represent. Um, and it's just the fact that people saw it just as an aesthetic appeal and not understanding that it's connected to a very long line and history of indigenous people. The thing that struck me when I was reading some of the information you sent me, some of your research and some of your writings, was the idea that they were putting it on underwear and flasks, mm -hmm. that some of the, the focus of it was also on sex and alcohol. Yes. So the focus on that was because a lot of what unfortunately happens within indigenous communities is that there isn't a lot of support when it comes to dealing with especially historical uh, trauma. So those connections of our ancestors kind of being removed from their land or their original homes and kind of placed on reservations and then later on within those reservations being limited in terms of support from either the government um, or for local communities. So this led to a really big push for a lot of indigenous community or indigenous individuals to be kind of using, you know, whether that was alcohol or drugs, and, you know, a lot of violence happens within these communities and, again, goes unreported and there's no support that happens. So that trauma continues from one generation to the next. And it's something that a lot of younger Indigenous people are trying to make a change from is creating organizations and um, support groups where they're able to kind of have an out 
kind of a better outlook in terms of how they can better in our kind of belief system heal themselves and be able to refine that balance and for a lot of indigenous people that's through art um, just because it's heavily connected to our stories. And it's that idea that when you see, because I looked up to see if Urban Outfitters had anything, and they had a blanket, but it, they, they couched it under vintage, vintage, vintage design. So you have this entire community, this entire people, that their identity has been filtered through this lens of what people outside the community have deemed as their normal. So when you watch everything back from, I can't think of it now, Lone Ranger to it's this idealized, stylized, where you, you take the beautiful and you co-opt it and you filter it through this lens and you make it comical. And you, it's so prevalent that people outside of Native communities don't get that that's not what's really going on. That that's not the identity of Native people. Exactly. And this is something that um, you especially speak to about kind of seeing um, the Lone Ranger as an example. Uh, so Hollywood is actually one of the main reasons why a lot of stereotypes have been pushed for indigenous people. Um, and it was during this era of kind of creating these different characters. Um, and it's so funny to kind of watch a lot of these films because when they ask the indigenous people to speak in their language, they're actually <laughs> making fun of individuals <laughs> in our language. Um, so it's a really interesting comparison to what representation we have now from, you know, either 50 years ago or even 100 years ago. And it's during this time that people don't realize that indigenous people were still fighting for our rights. And one thing that I really, you know, I think is important to bring up is that all of this interest in indigenous people led to this very hippie or bohemian culture. And it was during the 70s that indigenous people, especially here in the U.S., were still unable to practice their own spiritual or ceremonial practices. And it wasn't until the 70s that that was actually passed. So to be able to live during and see an era where it was just, you know, people taking our identity and using it in a way that was disrespectful to us, but also not realizing the heavy historical context behind it. I was thinking about that in the drive over, like how hippie culture is just a bunch of borrowed and manipulated. And it's pulled from all these cultures. And when, when I talk to people who identify as hippie, it's like, not only have you co-opted all these cultures, but now you've renamed it. Mm-hmm. And you've made it your own without any understanding of where that comes from. And it, you know, yeah, okay, your festivals are bright and colorful, but you don't have any connection to what this really means. Mm-hmm. And you're profiting off of it because you're selling these things as well. Exactly. And I think that's been the biggest pushback is these different types of designers or artists who, and especially just stores, especially around here in Madison, who still continue that perpetuation of the the hippie culture. And it's in those places that I get really frustrated personally myself because there's a lot of things that we consider as Indigenous people very important, such as, you know, picking sage is part of that process and to see these sage bundles being sold at this kind of weird you know wholesale value of like what it's not intended to be and for um, people to just kind of pick them up and purchase them and not have a better a good understanding of the reason why that sage is equally important you know it's just very difficult to kind of navigate with but that's something 
the reason why I created a lot of the, or helped develop the cultural appropriation workshop through the Center of Design and Material Culture was to be able to educate people a little further and to be able to kind of understand a little bit more about cultural appropriation and appreciation and to kind of decide on their own whether something is being appropriated. Um, and I think that's something that a lot of people are afraid of is making that decision. And it's something that, you know, they need to learn themselves um, because most of the time it's, you know, it's difficult to ask a person of color, you know, to be able to explain why cultural appropriation is bad and it shouldn't be put onto us to be able to explain that. And also that none of us can give you permission. There was a, a, a man that was speaking in a lecture that I watched that someone from, he was a white man and someone gave him a dashiki and he was asking if he could wear it. And one of the panelists said, yeah, you can wear it. But you have to, if someone challenges you on it, you have to be prepared to defend or accept the criticism. Like you can do whatever you want to do, but you can't do it without taking some responsibility for your actions. Exactly. And that's something that uh, through the workshop that we try to teach as many students here through the university um, as possible, but it's also open to uh, collectors and other individuals who are kind of interested in working with objects that are heavily associated to um, different cultures throughout the world. And that's something that pops up continuously is that that permission question, whether or not it's okay if I can use this design or if it's okay that, you know, I take this textile and repurpose it. Um, and it's always telling, you know, these individuals that, yes, you are able to do this, but you also need to realize you need to research and understand what that object is, where it com comes from, and whether it has important significance within that community or that identity. And if it does, you know, take, take a step back and realize that, you know, that's something that you shouldn't be using. And again, that's just something really important for a lot of younger generation to understand. And I think that's kind of coming too, is that they have access to all this information through the internet. No one is limited to op taking their phone, turning it on and, you know, pulling up Google and researching even for, you know, as little as half an hour, an hour to check on something that they're working with or a textile that they're working with. Um, so it's been really great because I've gotten a lot of feedback from students who are also working either in the fashion world or the interior world and kind of struggling with projects from these different places that they work with of kind of taking from other cultures and being calling it a, um, I think they said a dream board or an inspiration board. So for them, they're realizing that that is something that is wrong within the design world and that that's just something that sh they should be able to push against and kind of question. So that's been a really great push to see that, um, especially in comparison to when I first initially started this research, which was roughly around eight years ago. Tell me how it shows up in your work. You worked on a body of work called Juxtaposition, and, and give me a little bit of insight into that, because we've talked about it in these academic terms. We've talked, we've ta done a lot of talking about it, but we've not zeroed in on any objects. So talk to me about your work. Yeah, definitely. So Woven Juxtaposition was a exhibition that I completed during my first MFA, uh, which was in photography. So the viewing 
objects at Urban Outfitters and seeing the way that they were kind of pulling from my own culture was kind of a huge inspiration to this project. But what also inspired it was that I was working with a collector in Mineral Point, Wisconsin, who had collected over 700 Navajo weavings. And what was really interesting about this collection was that it was amazing in terms of the diversity of Diné weaving styles, but what was really unfortunate was that a lot of these weavings were in the best conditions. So to even photograph or exhibit them was very difficult because they weren't able to be taken out of that place, but it was also frustrating because it was a loss of my culture to be able to see all of these objects, these beautiful objects made by, you know, Dene weavers and to see them just kind of being placed in this, you know, windowless room where they weren't uh, able to be seen by the world. And then eventually um, the building kind of collapsed and he lost, I think, roughly around 90% of the collection. So it was a huge loss, but it was also something that inspired that series was that I was able to photograph a couple of those weavings. And what I had done was taken objects from Urban Outfitters and photographed those as well. So I did a juxtaposition of the weavings themselves with the objects. So to kind of see a comparison between the the similarities with um, the designs, but also how a lot of that history, again, is not connected to these objects. So um, a lot of the titles kind of explain exactly what the, the objects are referencing, um, but also one of them you know, people, when they first saw this um, the set called uh, Sex Trade, they kind of laughed and they're like, why is it underwear? And that's something that isn't talked about is that within Diné culture that a lot of Diné women, unfortunately, became um, slaves or sex slaves when they were taken from our original homeland to Bosque Redondo. So all of that history, again, isn't talked about in the books. Um, and it's something to kind of be teach people and be aware of is that a lot of indigenous people were taken advantage of during that time. But it's also kind of what is continuously important for me is to be able to reference back to those histories and talk about why appropriation is so bad. In episode one, we had a chance to talk with Ben Soley, an actor who advocates for better representation of indigenous culture in the media. A lot of that conversation centered around appropriation in clothing, but there was a little item he added at the end that didn't quite make the cut the first time around. So as we wrap up this episode, I'll leave you with his words and thoughts on the true cost of the commodification of culture. It was illegal for us to be native for centuries until 1976 or 1978. You know, my dad was 13. And between that and the residential and boarding school systems, which famously had the motto, kill the engine, save the man, where they would take children from their homes and they would uh, uh, essentially try and indoctrinate them with more Christian beliefs and more uh, uh, Eurocentric beliefs. And a lot of the time those kids died 
and they were taught to the ones who who survived they'd bury their classmates and they'd be taught to to hate the very essence of what made them native they would shave their heads they would convince them that all of all of their beliefs are are inferior and with that all of these kind of cult- cultural practices or or even you know aztec prints moccasins things that people are now capitalizing on that we couldn't wear without the the possibility of jail time and so watching white folks have you know, generational wealth created off the things that we weren't allowed to practice that belong to us that is absolutely infuriating to me while we're passing on generational poverty You've been listening to Refrangible, a production of the Center for Design and Material Culture at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And a special thanks to our guests for this episode, Dakota Mace, Dean Callis, Angela Pullman, and Ben Sully. If you haven't already, be sure to hit subscribe and leave a review. You can also give us a shout out on social media and let us know what you think about the show or if you have any thoughts or recommendations for future episodes. Just tweet at UW underscore CDMC. Until next time, I'm Jonah Chester. And I'm your host, Jennifer Fields, and we'll see you then. Mm-hmm.